This is Infidel One. Offending Coyote Down. Offending Coyote Down. Roger that. Welcome to Trappin' Radio. We're proud, organic, free-range, wild fur farmers of North America. Let me tell you a little story about how I was raised. Every day work, every day pray. God, family, friends, yeah, everybody sins. A winner never quits, and a quitter never wins. Help folks in need, don't fall for greed. A jealous man is weak, so think before you speak. If you love them, let them know. If you hate, let it go. Fast can be fun, but sometimes you need slow. God is all good, the devil is so real. So listen up, y'all, because this is how I feel. I won't back up, I don't back down I've been raised up to stand my ground Take my job, but not my guns Tax my check till I ain't got none Except for the good Lord of above I answer to no one Now let's cover our sponsors. They do a lot to help support Trapping Radio. So I'm asking you guys out there and gals, to help support our sponsors as they keep trapping radio on the air. First sponsors, Oki Cable and Trap Supply. Jeb's the owner of this. He's out of Oklahoma, super guy. You'll not meet anybody nicer. It's somebody you're gonna wanna deal with. You can reach him at OKTrapSupply.com. You can give Jeb a call at 918-429-4648. Not only does he do trap supply guys, he's a fur buyer, so if you're around the Oklahoma or surrounding states, give him a call with your fur. When you need stuff, give him a call and he'll get it out to you as soon as he can. Our second sponsor is F&T Fur Harvesters Trading Post. Everything you need for trapping, hunting with hounds, and predator calling. Guys, if you're into trapping fur, hunting fur, chasing fur with dogs, you're not gonna be able to think of hardly anything that you can't get from F&T. You can reach them at fntpost.com. You can also give them a call at 989-727-8727. Whatever you want, F&T's got it. Wildlife Control Supplies. Proven solutions for wildlife control. Delivering value, expertise, and products to the wildlife individual. If you're in the ADC business, control business, even fur trapping, you need to look at these guys' website. Top-notch company, have everything you would want, even the odd stuff that ADC guys are looking for. You can reach them at wildlifecontrolsupplies.com. You can give them a call at 877-684-7262. International number is 860-844-0101. If you're a wildlife control professional, you need to have wildlife control supplies as one of your favorites on your computer or your phone because when you come across something that you need specialized equipment, Alan will get it right out to you. Now let's go traffic. Toting son of a gun, yeah, I'm hell on the heart, just a rebel on the run. Scared, don't know it, fear, don't feel it. The truth is the light, sometimes you gotta fight. Good beats bad, right beats wrong. I'm a ballroom preacher and this is my song. I'm climbing for the top, representing for the country. I'm the people's champ, right out to dead camp. Shotgun toter, Republican voter, Hank Jr. supporter, let's protect our border. 
to hell with anyone who don't believe in the USA. Cause this is what I say. I won't back up. I don't back down. I've been raised up to stand my ground. Take my job, but not my Welcome to Trapping Across America. This is your host Clint Locklear. This is the day after Thanksgiving. I hope everybody had a good time with their family, enjoyed some good food. Guys, if you don't know much about me, let me explain my kryptonite. Everybody's got kryptonite and it gets me every Thanksgiving. My kryptonite is casseroles. You make casseroles, I'm going to eat them. And we had a, a bunch of folks come over. We spent it with Cindy's parents uh, in the afternoon. I was with my parents or my dad in the in the morning. And then we went over there and good grief, there was casseroles galore. And I ate a great big old plate full, a bunch of homemade rolls. And when that was all said and done, next thing I know, I kept thinking about the other casseroles. So I went in and got them. And after about four bites, I about lost it. And I swear to goodness, if I would have had one more cheese grit on top of the pile, that would have been too much and it would have been embarrassing. So sometimes Thanksgiving may be just a little bit too much if it was an everyday occurrence. And maybe that's just why it's once a year. But it's always fun seeing family and different things like that. And, and I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. And I do want to uh, say thank you uh, today coming through the postal service we got three different people that sent uh, the the horse apples or the fruit from the osage orange to me and i just want to say thank you i mean very much that that means a lot to me probably more than you realize uh because some of the stuff I've, i'm doing um with this new property and grafting and different things and, and that really means a lot that to me that says a lot about this audience because you can just make a, a request like that and all of a sudden there's boxes coming and uh, like I said, greatly appreciate it. So if you're going to send some and you haven't sent some, dude, I've got enough. Uh, I've got more than enough what I need for grafting material. I grow those out in beds. And then I'll be, uh, next fall, I will be grafting Chase Seedless onto every one of those. And like I said, just thank you very much that uh, the guys that sent that in. And um, I want to get into the show. And this is... I don't even know what I can call this show, but it I think it's going to be cool. For, for some of you out there, I definitely think y'all are going to find this highly interesting. What I'm looking at, I had an aunt in Texas who came across something in a box that she bought. I'm knowing her either at a flea market or at an antique store or she bought an old piece of furniture and this was in there, and uh, I wanna, we're going to talk a little bit about trapping at the end of this. But to me, this is just, you know, you know, when you think about Thanksgiving, you think about history, you think about what was going on in the world, what was that probably like back then, what was the true history of it. And just thinking a little bit back in time, I think this will just be a fun thing to do today. Uh, what I'm looking at is is an envelope that she sent me. Uh, Irene is an aunt of mine. Like I said, she sent this to me. And now I live in Dunlap, Tennessee. Now, the address for this is Crossroads, Tennessee. So this was shipped in a, in a booklet form in 1916, 1916 to somebody that was about 12 miles from me at the most. 
and somehow they've either moved to Texas or whatever happened and this paperwork ended up into Texas and it's fur prices, it's trap prices, it's their advertising, which, which I got a kick out of because not much has changed in trapping apparently since 1916. Now I'm gonna read some of those to you and talk about the prices and different things like that because there's some really cool stuff that they had back then. I don't know how practical it was. I don't know how functional it was, but it was it would it was definitely interesting and the and when I go over some of these things you'll see the difference between today trappers and the trappers of old. Now 1916 that's a long time ago. You know that's 99 years ago. And there was guys trapping, there was guys marketing to trappers, there were guys who were making bait and lure and traps and everything else like this. But the, the paperwork I'm going to be going over is from Funston, F-U-N-S-T-E-N, Brothers Company. They're direct handlers of fur. And what, what their pamphlet says, they're the largest in the world, St. Louis, USA. And it, everything came in this little bitty envelope, which I have. And I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to frame this somehow because this, this is really cool. And uh, being in St. Louis, you know, for guys that don't really know the history of trapping, St. Louis probably would have been a St. Louis at some time or another, but it wouldn't have been the St. Louis that we know today because that was the kickoff point to the big, bad, wild, you know, fur trapping grounds, you know, in the when we first started coming over here to this country. That was kind of like the last civilization. And St. Louis was pretty much you know, the last civilization before you hit the wilds and people would get on the Mississippi and they'd go up and down and they would end all the way out in Albuquerque, New Mexico and Oregon and all different cool places like that. But think about, I mean, when you get in a car today to drive from St. Louis all the way to New Mexico, you're in the car for a long, long time. You know, to get that far, you're probably talking... 2,000 miles. I mean, I didn't figure that up or anything, but I mean for for mountain men To get their supplies when they originally left they get most of those guys were in brigades or companies There was some free trappers, but they would leave there Completely in the unknown and what would take us two to three days to drive Going full speed ahead. They'd end up in New Mexico or you know Colorado Wyoming wherever they were going and they would trap and then they would have to bring this stuff back and normally those guys after three four or five years of that would come back to st. Louis and you know they would hang around there and maybe or maybe not go back out as uh, a trapper in one of these companies but it, you know st. Louis even though we don't look at st. Louis the same today that that had a lot more to do with the the historical bends I guess of what happened in America and eventually we would have settled west regardless but it was trappers that set all of that up I mean the history of trappers when people when you really think about it and people don't seem to America would not be America that we know of for a long time if it wouldn't have been for trappers and the free spirited of them and I just can't imagine the toughness of these guys and even what we're going to be talking about is 1916 just because I have this paperwork in front of me I mean this was a different breed of people I mean it definitely I can't imagine how tough the average human being was in 1916 
and I want to go over some of the prices and stuff, but before I do, I want to read some of this stuff out of this catalog because this is just a trip. It's, uh, it's the Trapper Supply Catalog. It has game laws in it. Uh, they're saying this is three books in one, and, it, and it's, it's probably about the thickness of a quarter, you know, and it's probably eight by 10 is the size of it. This is volume number 17, so they've been putting this out since at least late 1800s, you know, this type of book. And it's, it, it's just some really cool stuff in here. And I want to read some of these traps in here just because, you know, we, we think there's nothing new. And a lot of times there's probably not a whole lot new. But uh, the first thing that caught my mind in this thing was the Funston Submarine Trap. Now this was a, a whopping 70 cents. You could get eight of these for a dozen. And it, what this looks like guys, if you can imagine this, similar to a foothold trap, but in a frame and on both ends of the jaw, instead of having really a base underneath it the way we have it now with our traps, it had these two float things that were, they looked like they were plastic or styrofoam. And you floated this thing out in the water. And it didn't matter how deep the water was or how shallow the water was because you could use it like a somewhat of a foothold trap because it had a pan. But on the, the far ends of this thing are two rollers made out of plastic or styrofoam and it floats. And that's the reason they call it submarine trap. So when it was in the water, according to this picture, and it says the patent is applied for, the pan of this thing set above the water and the jaws, just the tips of the jaws, would be a little bit out of the water. And they, they've got teeth on them. I mean, it looks like something out of jaws, really. But, and, and the thing was, that you would put this in line with slides and, and runs and different things like that. And the, the muskrat would, would come out and he would try to swim between the jaws and get up on the pan, apparently, and get caught. And then your animal would be floating there in the water in this trap. And it's called a submarine trap, 70 cents a piece. Now I'm gonna read this just because this is pretty cool. Think of the, the numberless surefire sets you could make. Out in the water, you have animals off their guard. There are no human odor, no smell of metal, no indication of a natural enemy. They forget to be cunning and wary and their capture is certain and easy. Until the Funston submarine trap was invented, it was a difficult matter to make a set in the water. The standard traps are not adaptable for this purpose, and only in exceptional instances are they wholly successful. But the submarine trap has made possible a vast number of alluring and deadly water sets. It can be set anywhere, in deep or shallow, still or swift water on the surface or just below the surface, when ready for action. It resembles a harmless piece of driftwood with nothing about it to arise suspicion. The submarine is made entirely of metal, so I guess the, the float things are metal because it's a hand drawing. The two stout jaws, which are tooth as to hold the animal firmly without injuring the fur, are held apart by a very sensitive trigger when the trap is set. And just to give you an idea of this and what this, what this trap must have been like in its mind, if you've ever seen a bird trap 
or if you if you can imagine pulling the bars of a, a body grip trap like halfway apart then you put a little bitty stick with a hinge in the middle of it and then you're going to get a bird to land on that or something but when you push the stick it releases a a hinge and it allows the draw the jaws to slam shut that's the triggering system of this so you're setting this trap guys in between these jaw looking teeth things with a hinge point that you've got to get just right i mean there's no way to do this from underneath from this picture especially suitable for muskrats otter mink coon beaver this trap will catch and hold securely any ordinary fur bearer take along a ball of stout wine, uh, stout cord. When settling the submarine trap, tie one end of the cord to the center of the coal spring and the other to the end of a heavy stone enough to anchor the trap securely. You want the trap to ride on the surface of the water. Have the cord about two feet longer than the depth of the water and the trap to float beneath it. To bait the trap, get a small branch or twig about a foot long with leaves on it. Force one end of the opening on the top side of the trap and bend it so it'll be out in the water then place a piece of carrot apple or meat on the wire bait holder what well, i guess that's what they're calling the pan then rise and fall they will rise and fall in the stream overnight and does not affect its efficiency it'll be sitting in the middle of a stream pond or lake or near the bank so basically it's a baited trap that floats which is actually, you know, for you guys out there that like to tinker, I mean, you can't see this picture. But uh, that may actually have some, some applications. If you had a bigger pan on this thing and it would float completely and you just had to drop them off. Because there's some states, especially down, uh, you get in certain states like Alabama and different places, there's a lot of gray area and red area that you gotta be aware of. You can't stake to the bottom of the lake because that land is technically the land owners. You can't do anything except use floating traps or something like that. If you were to make a platform with a trap, now this thing floats, now you could use noodles, you could use anything, but what if, what if we got a little creative thinking about this idea where We've got a floating trap for muskrats that just has the pan as the platform. So you could have a piece of wood on it or whatever, but you got to make sure that with it floating and the jaws are set like on a standard jaw. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make it as dangerous as this thing is to set. But if you had the platform where it rode just above the water level, you could probably do this with a 220 or something like that where when the trap fired, the jaws would come over the wood and you get the muskrat. I mean, it's a pretty cool idea actually. How practical is it? I don't really know, but it is one of those things because everybody goes, well, there's nothing new in trapping. Well, this definitely isn't new, but I haven't seen anything like it out there, but I can definitely see when you have stuff out in the water, muskrats get on top of it. And if you had a pan on it, or maybe you connected two of these things together with a log or whatever, you, you could then, I mean, just think how simple it would be if you could figure out the functionality of this trap with some good muskrat lure apple like they're doing or just have the platform where you could go around the edge of places where you maybe can't get into the perfect set 
and drop a weight off with a string or cable to it and then the traps floating out in the water and let the muskrat come to you i think it's a pretty cool idea and at 70 cents a piece back then that means this would have cost because in 1916 for us to get the same value per dollar that they got was 22 dollars and change so we'll say let me, let me check my iPad real quick, but I think that's correct. I think it's 22, because I did look this up. 22.79, so we'll say 22. So to get this, let's say the trap was a dollar, that means you'd have to spend $22 a trap. Now even though we today think that those traps must have been a lot cheaper, the, the purchasing power of that was near about the same as it is today because the depreciation of the dollar pretty much is consistent when you buy one thing to the next over one time period to the next so for someone to have this muskrat trap would have been about probably about eighteen dollars today for us to have that and and i think that'd be that wouldn't really be all that bad that's a submarine trap we're gonna flip over here now look it's like look at victor traps per dozen for an ot trap was 11 cents a piece and 122 a dozen for number four victor long springs they were 40 cents a piece and 477 a dozen now if you if you take the dollar difference of that away Let's just say it's 50 cents to make it even. Even That'll be about $11 a trap. So they paid roughly the same then as we pay today for the traps. Even though when you look back at it and you think, man, those were really cheap back then. But at the same time, their dollar was different than ours is. So they're spending about $10, $11 on a number four Victor, which is pretty much what you would spend today if you got one off a of tailgater. They have the Oneida Jump Traps, a number one, 18 cents a piece. A 14 with teeth, 63 cents a piece. They had new house traps. And this is what's amazing to me. The quality of those traps compared to the Victor or the Oneida is, is, is not even close, but the price is not that big a difference. For a number one, it's 28 cents a piece. 329 a dozen for a 81 let's do one that we all know what it is uh they don't have a 114 at the time they do have a 14 and um that's that's about the size of a number four so that's 96 so these were were probably about twice as much as the uh, the victors and the Oneidas were at the time, which is pretty cool. And, you know, when we think, you know, back when trappers, what's interesting when you look at these old things, and I've said this before, anybody that's ever around Columbus, Ohio, look up Tom Parr at the Trappers Museum. You'll be amazed at what you see when, when, when you go in there and you look at these old things. Lamination, as far as modern trappers are concerned, when we look at lamination the way that we do today, that was that came about in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, guys were starting to weld number nine annealed wire on their jaws because they were starting to power them up and different things like that. So that's kind of when you think that this this application 
was in process, but that's not really the case. I'm looking at a number 81, which is a number one size trap that has got underneath the lamination that's twice the diameter or the width of the jaws. And, and to me that, I mean, that's in 1916, they're already making laminated traps because they could already see the value of that back then. But we don't think of it that way because when we look at our history, we don't go all the way back. Now they have stretchers and you know, you have your choice of stretchers for coons at this time. You can get them where they're squared at 30 cents a piece. And it, it, it's kind of, a, these things were wood frames. I've never seen these things actually in real life where I've ever paid attention to them anyway. What these were, were pieces of round wood with holes drilled in them about every half inch. And you get four of them for what they're calling a stretcher. And then you'd have these pins and then you would stretch it out till it was taut and you would put the pins down through the adjacent uh, right angles on these pieces of stick. So it would make a perfect square. I mean, that would be, if, if you were to do that today, you'd freak out a fur buyer. But I can see after looking at this, because I just always thought people tacked them up on barns. I didn't know they had stretchers for them. And this is really cool how they did it. Because they even back then, they had a way to do it very efficiently. You can get those for 30, or you could get the wire stretchers for about 33 cents a piece for a, a, a coon size. Now here's a sure hole trap for 25 cents a piece guys and this is a a piece of equipment i hope i never see one of y'all using this trap is set along and, and before we get into this when we think it from an entrepreneur side from a trapper side from a design side from everything what i'm looking at right here and i'm getting ready to describe this sure hole trap it is the earliest version of a DP trap that I think that there is. There, it, I don't know how long this has been around at this point, but if you could see this, it is basically our modern dog-proof trap. So like when I'm grabbing one of my Freedom Brand dog-proof FB1s or 2s, this concept, the actual concept of how to get a raccoon to work a trap this way has been around since 1916. That's just a neat little historical fact. So what I'm looking at is a piece of wood. Well, let me read the description. And that way you'll see that they're thinking of it in the same way that we think DPs today. The trap set along the edge of a stream or pond perfectly imitates a crawfish hole. There is nothing to arouse the suspicion and is invisible. And there's no human odor because it's made out of wood. It is... It is practically certain to catch any passing raccoon, mink, skunk, or possum. The sure hole trap is turned out of a piece of solid oak. One end is pointed and the other end has a hole in it that is one inch in diameter. Now go measure your dog proof traps. Let's see. One inch in diameter and three and a half inches long. Three, and this is the difference between modern and old, but the concept guys have been around there the whole time. And this this is, if you could see the picture of this, um, it, it's pretty cool. Where we use a trigger in jaws, 
you know, we've all kind of heard the old thing. You drill a hole down in the tree trunk and you put three nails on an angle and you put your bait below it and the coon grabs it. And when he tries to pull up, the nails get caught on his, his, his paw or his arm. That's what this thing is, except it's a self-contained unit like a DP trap. It looks like a crawfish hole, a few drops of Funston animal scent or bait at the bottom of the trap. The animal easily shoves his paw past the sharp points, but to find out is impossible to pull out as it points bite deeply into the leg and hold him fast. Now what this looks like is if you go look at one of your DPs, whatever the brand is, and then take a, a make a cone on the bottom of it where it's sharp so you can push it down in the ground. Where we're using, it depends on what trap you're using on the stabilizer, but it's a point. So these things were made just to shove in the bank for a DP trap all the way back then. It's, it's already got the chain hooked up to it and it's got these screws. They look like wood screws going down into this thing. But think about that. The concept of DP trapping in 1916 and you know we I think it's really easy for us today to think that guys back then were were really crude now they didn't have the technology that we have there's no doubt about that but they did have they understood the animals and how something worked you have a hole you they stick their hand in and they can't pull their hand out so that's a a dog proof trap now here's one that I think is very interesting and this cost a number 3 size it's 35 cents. This is a tree trap. And if you've never seen one of these, it's like one of the earlier versions of a body grip trap, but without the, the, the same way that Frank body grip that it uh, got the patent on it in 1915. These tree traps, and I played around with them and they definitely work to some extent. You would nail this thing to the side of a tree and you would have, Instead of having two jaws, you have this very strong, strong spring and you pull that up against the tree and it's got dull teeth on it. Not something that'll penetrate, but just something that'll hold. And it's got a little trigger that you put bait on. And the, the animal in the picture, they've got a raccoon in this thing, but the, the picture is the animal goes up and he puts his mouth on the bait and this thing slams down and pins him instead of having a jaw of a conibear, it pins him up against the tree. And it, and it nails him that way. And, and what I played with them with is squirrels. And they actually work pretty pretty dang well on that. But it's a, uh, the tree trap catches climbing and strictly ground animals with equal ease can be nailed in the top branch of a tree or to a post or board on a stump. Catches animal by the neck, kills them instantly. Nothing once traps ever gets away. Ratchet lock prevents jaw from being uh, forced open when the trap is sprung. So that's, that is different than the one I played with. Uh, can be used in the snow when it's too deep for other traps. Now these guys were thinking back then. I mean, they were really thinking back then about to do that. So basically when you look at the Johnny Thorpe way of, of trapping mink where he would put his, his, you know, his leech and stuff on the trigger, and let it bounce back off a log. They were doing something very similar to that all the way back then, which makes me wonder how many of those what we considered new sets were even new at all. 
Now here is one that I find very interesting. As most of y'all know, I've got a lure that's called Unfair Advantage. You smear it on dog-proof traps and, and cat flags and stuff like that. Back then, they actually had a glow-in-the-dark fish. And, it, and it's not glow-in-the-dark per se, but it's kind of like a piece of jewelry where, you know, it's real shiny and has all these different colors on it and different things like that. And, it, and they were using this on the, on the pans of the traps in the water, kind of the way we think of as crawfish and stuff. You know, like when Margiata and people like that using those traps. But they had this almost thing that would glow in the dark to do that. So even the unfair advantage to me, there's nothing really new there. Now here's what I find interesting. You can get a 22 caliber Stevens rifle for $3.25 in 1916. You can get a takedown version of a 22 or a 32 caliber rifle for $6.75. You can get a single barrel shotgun for $7.50. You can get a double barrel for $15. And you can get a revolver, which the caliber was 32 or 38 for $4.50. And when the lures, part of the reason I want to talk about this, because guys, nothing is really that new in the trapping industry at all. I want to read an advertisement from 1916 from these people and tell me how far we've come along in the trapping industry. Funston animal baits will draw animals from great distances to your trap. They're intriguing and irresistible and accurately aimed to to your target tremendously compelling through wildly different powers of acute and built for the animals may be nothing may be denied the animal baits do not appeal to the human or the curiosity of animals but to their most compelling instinct the sex instinct some other baits now on the market also appeal slightly and this is in, in italics this is separating them apart slightly to the instinct but there is some relative difference between these baits and the funston animal baits as there is between a popcorn and a high-powered rifle oh, excuse me between a pop gun and a high-powered rifle funston animal baits are the final product of the knowledge and experience of many men we purchased hundreds of formulas from the best trappers in the country because we began as manufacturing of these baits and after a long series of rigid tests we eliminated all but the most effective ones and demonstrated in actual practice for each animal we have a specific bait these baits the baits that have actually produced real results and are the baits that we offer to you now on the next page you will read about read about the, the baits using about amusing them. Remember, these are these are not just average experiences of average trappers. These are exceptional trappers using ex the exceptional bait from Funston. And when I'm looking up through here, they got everything from otter, mink, civet cat. They have them for wolves. And there and the the bait at that time, the way it came, what it looks like. They were little metal tins. You get one of these tins for a dollar, and you can get six of them for five dollars. 
so you could mix and match them kind of like my lure special is i guess and you but you get five of them or six cans for five dollars now what is that in in real money well if one dollar will get you uh one can and five dollars will get you that five times 22 all right to get five one ounce baits from these guys in 1916 would have cost you $110 equivalent today. So the next time someone thinks that maybe that a $12 pint of bait's too expensive, think about that. They were selling one ounce. You get five ounces for 110 equal dollars from now to then. So the lure business back then must have been crazy profitable compared to what it is now just because of the what they would get for them because you got to think you're buying traps for 30 cents or you're buying one bait for a dollar so if we were going to do that today that means you know an average 14 dollar trap we should be selling the lure to that for see 20 see 14 be 28 dollars an ounce so that has definitely changed in the market and they've got the pictures just like we have today of the the catches they're not near as impressive a pocket knife back then was 85 cents 95 cents 50 cents boots mitts you know they had the books the same ones we see in um, the fur fishing game they tell you basically how to to handle all the everything from muskrats to coyotes to wolves to beaver and different things like that but they do have one in here i've never seen in a trapping catalog and it's bear the following method is used successfully for trapping bear find a hollow log if possible find one about eight feet long and hollow the entire length if the log of this kind cannot be found cut one to about this length covering the fresh cuts with soil so it looks natural as possible place this log between where you expect to trap and where there are signs of the bear then take a good sized chunk of meat cut slits in it into the size uh, and pour or function bear bait of course tie it to a good stout cord then you're going to cover the trap so you're using you're actually putting what they're telling you to do is actually put this thing um, in the log i don't know why it's eight feet basically it's a great big dirt hole or an eight foot long portable pocket at that time to catch the bear they have all these different things in here even the civet cat which used to be a lot more uh, profitable and then the ringtail cats and at the back they'd have all the state laws so that, that's what that is. But I do want to, before we get into the trapping part, talk about the fur market. Now this was sent to 12 miles from where I'm living right now in Tennessee. So keep that in mind. This is for Tennessee furs. Fur, fur of all kinds is in demand. As a matter of fact, fur garments were never more fashionable than they are today. I mean, you can, you can almost quote this from a NAFA are a fur harvesters magazine today but let's look at the prices in 1916 of, of what the fur is and and part of this to keep in mind 
you know, I've, I've done some things that I've had some farmers and stuff get mad at me, but when you think about things in commodity the way that they are, 56 pounds of corn is a bushel. That corn is worth somewhere between three and eight dollars, depending on the year, because it's in a commodity type fashion. And I think as time has went on, our fur on the global economy the way it is now has become more of a commodity than what it was at this time where it was more unique and, and more wanted by different people. It wasn't looked at strictly as a commodity the way it is today. But in 1916, a large skunk averaged $3. So if we put that in today's money, guys, think about what a trapper's making on a skunk. That is 66 bucks. What do you think we would do as trappers if we had $66 for a skunk. Now, there's like five sheets of paper I've got here. And we're gonna go back to those other fur, but I want you to I want you to use your imagination on this picture that I'm getting ready to explain to you. I've got an outcrop in a rock. This looks like somewhere in uh, South Dakota, maybe in the northeastern side of Idaho. I'm not Idaho, but Iowa, we have the rock facing. There's a, a guy in a coat with a 22 in the front of a hole. He's got a kid behind him that's, that's dragging these skunks downhill after he shoots them. And there's a boy up at the top, kind of on this little knoll going under these rocks with a Funston Perfect Smoker. Gentlemen, I'm sending you this photograph of 16 skunks. now. $66 for a skunk times 16. That's $1,056 in their value and our value today. So that, that way you can get a, a generalization of what this is. So this gentleman with 16 skunks this morning with his two boys made $1,056. At 16 skunks I caught with the use of the Funston Perfect Smoker, the skunk den was in a hole 20 foot back in the bluff of rock shown in the picture. My little boy used a smoker and we attached 20 foot of holes to the smoker. I set the number, always oh, set a number of steel traps at the opening of the den and caught them as they crawled out and also shot some of them. There were 16 in all. There's several, several of these pictures and um, testimonials on this thing about this smoker. And the smoker cost $1.50. Now, if you, if me and you were back in 1916, regardless of what it would smell like to, to shoot and trap and be three foot from these things, the way this guy is with his rifle, I guarantee you it would be some stinky people going around in our day-to-day -day life. Because that was, that one catch right there was $1,000. And then you've got these other guys in here that are showing these pictures. When you look at the number of these, like for two weeks, you know, they're doing two, uh, two and $3,000. They're not having a lot of fur. They didn't have the, the, they weren't mechanized the way that we are now. But the, I just find stuff like this interesting. A guy with his two boys make $1,000 in the morning at that time. Okay, now possums. Average possum price was 90 cents, so that would have been about $20 to us today. Ordinary raccoon, now these are Tennessee furs that I'm telling you. These are specifically for Tennessee prices. Extra heavy raccoon is about $3, and an ordinary raccoon 
that are black would be about two dollars you got short narrow and broad they have these different ways that they used to degrade these things out apparently and you could get them all the way down to 15 cents but even at 15 cents think about what that is that's like a, a nine dollar raccoon on the lowest end mink dark four dollars so that means a mink at that time if, if we were going to get those prices today would be 80 $88 for a mink for a dark one an ordinary one would be worth over 60 and a pale one which only be worth about a dollar be worth about $22 a muskrat you know I got tickled a couple of years ago when, when everybody got fired up over the $13 muskrat let's talk about what a muskrat was actually worth in 1916 a muskrat is 70 to 50 cents and that is a uh, the only price they have. They have a short one for 45 to 30 cents, a narrow one, which I'm not quite sure what that would mean with a muskrat, but a narrow one's 28 cents and a broad one's 27 cents. But a, a, a muskrat that averages 60 cents, you get 70 to 50 cents on a muskrat. Okay, 22 divided by 0.70 equals well that's not right uh, well it was about it's about $16 a muskrat so the high prices we were seeing were not that high at $13 a piece you look at these and go what's well, only 70 cents but think about what a dollar bought it was $20 so if you had if you had $20 in your pocket back then, you'd have $800 of, of purchasing power today. If you had a, you know, if you had $1,000 or say $100, that's you have a $100 bill in your pocket back then, that's worth $2,200. Or is that $22,000? 100 times 22 equals, yeah, a $100 bill at that time would buy the equivalent of what we can buy today for $2,200. But the muskrats back then, which was an average year, this was not a fur boom by any stretch of the imagination, was what we were fired up about a couple of years ago. Now, fox, a red was seven to nine, so let's say that is eight, eight times, uh, eight times 22 equals, that's $176 for um, a red fox. Holy cow. A gray fox is only worth, uh, if you average the price out here, about $2. So they're worth about $44. An otter was 12 to 9. So let's say 10. So 10 times 22 equals $220 a piece. And a civet cat would be 50 cents so you're talking a uh, civet cat which is just like a fancy skunk is uh worth 22 11 dollars now wildcat is only worth a dollar so wildcat back then only bring you about 22 dollars in value now get this a house cat that is black is worth 40 cents so that means every feral house cat that was black it worth about nine bucks 
and a common house cat is 20 cents. So that's like five or six dollars for a house cat at the time. Ginseng was worth seven fifty wild. Golden seal five dollars. Beeswax thirty one cents a pound. So golden seal at that time, see that is very different today. But I think a lot of it has to do with it, the scarcity of it today than what it was back then. 7.5 times 22 equals 100. So in 1916, ginseng would have brought you $165 worth of value of over what it is now compared to what it is then. So the ginseng today is worth a whole lot more than it was then. And I, and I really think that has to do with the scarcity just because so much of it has been dug over the time and now we're in the global side where the Chinese want it the way that they do. I know that was kind of weird to go over that. I just find this stuff interesting. I know if Jeff's listening to this, he's probably going to want to see this just because it is so comical to read and the advertising is the same as it is today as it was in 1916, which I thought was just, just really cool. Because when you read this and you read about some of the, you know, one of the most well-known advertisers in trapping in our modern era, which was Bill Nelson, is not much different than all the way that was in 1916, which he would have been a kid at that time. So all he really did was extend what was already going on when it come to that. Now, what, well, I want to finish up today on a topic that is very personal to me. It is one being thanksgiving i don't know what made me start thinking about this but uh you know johnny thorpe passed away just a couple of weeks ago and you know he was without a doubt one of the last real old school trapping semi-mountain men that we had today and i want to i took instruction from him and if if you've if you've ever got to meet johnny i promise you it left an impression he was a little man he was short he was skinny he didn't eat very much. Um, he did like his whiskey. There's no doubt about that. But he was always hustling one way or the other. And whether it was with trapping or lures and baits or treasure hunting or anything like that, he spent a lot of his uh, younger man days out west treasure hunting and, and mining and stuff for turquoise and different, different things like that. So, I mean, he had an amazing life. And when you think about somebody that grew up in the time period that he was in, it wasn't much after the catalog that I just read from you. The changes he must have seen in his life, which was unreal. And when I took instruction from him, which was probably about 10 years ago, maybe eight or nine, but about say say nine years ago, when I took that instruction from him, I went up there and I stayed with him, I think it was four days. And I went into his house, which I thought was a storefront because he probably had, I don't know, fifty to $100,000 worth of arrowheads and jewelry and and old antique stuff, and, and I thought it was a, a storefront that he sold to tourists in the summer. That was just his living room that he had. He stuffed on a cot 
which if you've been to some of the shows, you've seen that. He just pulls his cot out next to his, uh, his Jeep at that time, and would, that's where he would sleep at a convention. And he slept on the same cot in his house. I mean, hardcore didn't even, didn't even register when it comes to that. Because if you, if, when you get to talking with him about like some of the treasure hunts and stuff, and the way that they used to trap them when they were younger, back like when this catalog stuff I was just reading to you, you know, I'm not the best to be reading on something like that, but just wanted to use some of their, their own words there. Think about how tough that someone had to be to be like that. They would go into a lake, you know, the big lakes up in the mountains of New York. In the summer, they would go and start taking provisions, salt, bacon, flour, sugar, coffee, they would take poles and, and hide their tents. They would go into these places, mostly for muskrat trapping, and they would do some beaver and otter and fox and stuff around, but they were mostly muskrat trapping at that time. And think about the prices that, that I just told you that those muskrats were worth. And they would stay there for 30 to 60 days in the winter time on snow and ice in walled tents. And when they got done, they had to carry their traps in and out. They had to carry their fur in and out. And they had to carry their supplies in and out. The, the toughness of the breed of men that that was, I just don't think we have any comprehension of, of what that is. I mean, I don't know of anybody that would even attempt to do anything like that today unless it was like an expedition or some type of historical you know, just to see what it was like, but you're not gonna stay there for 45 days. You know, we could, but that's just not the way to do it. And, and another thing to think about, the hardness of those men, what that meant. When you think about the prices that they were getting at that time, when we get in a, a $25,000 vehicle and put anywhere from two to $4 worth of fuel in it to go 20 miles, and the, the, the cost of the equipment and everything else like that, our expenses are so high. And their expenses were so low. So when you hear about these old guys making a living trapping, take that in mind. You know, me and you're scrambling around and get excited when they're $50 red fox. And their fox are worth $174. Now we, we have the technology and the skills and the equipment now to go out and catch way more than they did but we're also doing it at a high, lot higher cost than they did at the time because of our expenses and everything else. And they were doing it almost like camping and mostly out of canoes and feet and, and stuff like that. And it, just the, the toughness of doing that, you know, your, your only heat, you probably didn't take a shower for 45 days, different things like that, just the absolute toughness. But when I was up with Johnny Thorpe, and I got to go out and we did uh, cow and fox. We spent a day on bobcat. We spent a day on mink just because I'm with Johnny Thorpe and you got to go talk mink when you're with Johnny Thorpe, of course, in New York. And then we did a day on uh, beaver, otter, and raccoons. One thing that became very clear to me after spending all that time with Johnny is all of the fluff and all of the stuff that we as modern day trappers use, he had no need for. 
Now, a lot of that, I'm sure, had to go back to the time that he grew up. But when, when we get out of the truck with our bags, and, and we've seen it on conventions where, you know, now there's guys that have set equipment, then after the, you know, catch equipment, then they've got four different types of shovels and eight hammers and, and you know, all this other type of stuff. And the four-wheeler they're on has got to be a big one because between them and all the crap on there, it's just, you know, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds to go make a set. And with Johnny, if it got really complicated, it was a trap with a chain and a drag or a trap with a chain and a fence staple a yo-ho trowel, a couple of bottles of lure in his coat pocket, and if he was going to get really complicated with it, it would be a metal can that had frozen sardines, uh, not sardines, but minnows in it. And that's what he used when he went and he caught all the fur that everybody's seen all the pictures with. And, that, and when I saw that set after set and animal after animal, how he stripped down every single thing he could. So when he gets out of the truck, basically he didn't even need a bag. You know, his digging stuff is the, the yo-ho and a claw hammer. He's got his trap with a drag or he's got his trap with a fence staple. His lures in his pocket. And if he's going to be off location because of people, he, he takes these cans, which I'll get into more in a minute, and he uses them as a call lure. But that's all he was doing. He had simplicity down to a fact. He still used a lot of spring hole sets, which I don't know of any modern day trappers that use them. I don't have a whole lot of access to springs like that around here, even though I'm in the mountain. But the few times that I've been around them, I have to admit, I caught fur with them. It was, it was quite amazing, and it was... It was uh, actually quite exciting to, to set sets like that but there again it was crazy simple about how he would do it and he could set out a bunch of stuff over a long distance and do it very quickly even though if his catch would have been a little bit better by doing this or that his percentage of, of catch over the day was probably higher than a modern trapper because of how simplified he had everything and you know like the first set that we did just to tell you how simple it was we, we get out of the truck and and i've talked to several guys that gave strength uh, uh instruction he went pretty much on the same route with everybody one of the first places you get out when you're talking about fox or coyotes is a trail that deer hunters use to go into these fields back through the woods and you're up in big woods where he's at in the mountains of new york and he goes, well, how would you catch it? So I, I go and I grab one of my traps and drags and I put in a flat set, you know, not on the trail, but off of it just a little bit to the side. And he's like, you're going to get robbed every single time. And I'm like, well, I'm praying the drag will get it far enough away from here that maybe someone won't notice it. And he goes, well, you, you blended it in. You can't really see your set. But if someone catches on to that, they'll rob you blind. And I was a lot younger then and I was a lot more gung-ho at the time. And I just, I remember looking at him and go, I guarantee I can set more traps and they're willing to steal. And that was my attitude back then, to be honest with you. And he just went, well, let's look at this a different way. And he knew the wind, which was different that day than it was during trapping season. And he said, the, the general wind comes this way. And we walked 
into the wind probably 20 feet and we came up this little bitty tree it was probably 10 12 inches round and you know at the bottom of the tree you have these roots that come off you know so you've got like a little pocket and the bark on this tree was gone I mean you can tell I'm surprised the tree was still alive it is there was no bark within four foot of the ground uh, up four foot of no bark whatsoever and he I said well how do you do this and he got down and he took his trap out of his coat pocket which which had the chain on it and he had a fence staple in his front blue jean pocket and he had that hammer and he hammered the fence staple into the root of that tree and you can tell this has been done dozens and dozens and dozens of times and then he puts his lure and bait up in that little pocket between the trees and he beds the trap with no pan covers no peat moss no wax dirt no anything and just used the leaf duff to cover his trap and he and then out of his coat pocket he took some lure and he put up in that hole and then he walked about 15 feet away from that thing into the wind further so keep that in mind where the trail is at we went upwind so if something's on the trail it would smell what we're doing at that tree and then 10-15 feet beyond that tree going the same direction he's got this aluminum is a beer can actually and it and he he gets a lot of these minnows and he shoves these beer cans full of the minnows and he freezes them he had a whole freezer of these things just stacked just like cordwood in there and he 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 would run a piece of wire through that can and he would hang that off a limb now this would be where when the the minnows started thawing out and rotten caller was upwind of the set which was upwind of the trail and this allowed him to catch fox and coyotes where very few people would be able to set a trap because if you're either on the trail or in the woods and he went in the woods and pulled those animals that were following the the trail that was there from the game and the hunters he was following he was letting them the animals be on that trail but he wasn't on the trail and he pulled them off of it now is is that setup as effective as setting right on the trail probably not but with his style of system he could do it so fast and repeat it over and over and over and over again for the time of a modern trapper to put in a set he's already put in four of the time of actually being somewhere and he's not having to deal with the people as much because he's got the you know he he looks at the way the ground is with the knolls and the in the brush and everything and the animal would be out of sight so unless the animal is making some type of over-the-top noise or something like that most people could walk up and down that trail all day long and never know that he's got a fox or a coyote caught 20 foot away from him it was it was really cool to see that at least it was for me he simplified it to the ninth degree and when we were doing mink one of the things that you know i've talked so much about you know mud and dirt and rain and and water and issues and different things with being with johnny on his mink line that really concrete concreted the thought process of staying out of the water johnny would go and he showed me several of these things now this is old school way of thinking he would build the most perfect mink sets 
on those mountain streams in New York and never set them. He would make sure that there was a, a level wall with a little cubby and everything you'd want in the mink set that you would know where it is. He would build them up so they were obvious from the road and he would never set them. Because he knew what the animals were going to do, but more than that, he knew what the human animal was going to do. And he's going to take the easy route. Well, when Johnny would get out, and I would see this spot, and I fell for the same trap that he probably set for no telling how many thousands of trappers. Because he, he, just, he didn't make it so obvious that you knew something was wrong, but it was just such a good set that you couldn't help but focus on it. And Johnny just walked up on the high bank completely around that perfect set and he would go downstream 30 or 40 yards and then he would set his set now the interesting thing is the sets that he put in for trappers to set was one in the water and he knew that about half the time the water level is going to be wrong because the, the the water going up and down so he knew they were out of business for at least half the time Plus, he knew where that trapper was at, and he knew his mink well enough to know that at this certain time of the year, most of the time they're going upstream or they're going downstream. So he would cut off the trappers by making this perfect location for them and catching the mink before they got to him, which was, I mean, think about the strategy involved in that from a old school trapper to think that way, because we don't think that way. And then he would go in his mink sets, which he'd usually have two or three, the way on the time period that someone else would be set in that location, his traps were never in the water. And I know we've seen the videos in his books and stuff like that. I never saw one of his traps in the water. Most of the time they were within four or five feet of the water, but they were never in the water. He would do little dirt holes, kind of like you would for fox, where you have a high bank come over and it kind of shelves off, and then it goes down and you start hitting the rocks and stuff in the water. That shelf, not on the high bank side, but on the before you get to the high bank side, but that little shelf where it would kind of end up in the above, way above the water, but not on the top of where the forest floor is, is where he would put his sets. And he's like, well, the mink, will only go to the water and spend time in the water where there's a reason for them to do so, which is a deep pool or something like that, where they're going to be physically feeding or hunting. All this other stretch of creek, and he said, where I put those sets in for those other trappers are in the stretches of creek that the mink have no interest in. They're always going to be flat. They're going to be kind of fast. There's not going to be any food there. And I'm, the trapper's going in and putting these traps in, but he's, and he's doing that kind of because he knows that's not a good location, but he made the location look good enough that someone, that's where they would get out and put their set. He would go further upstream and he would set all of his high and dry. And the purpose for that was the mink would be on the bank side, on that shelf most of the time, when they were running up or downstream and they would come in contact with his sets. He would also do blind sets up on that shelf a lot of times. Or if you had a bunch of roots that were two or three feet out of the water, he would try to find the mink trail going through there, then he would blind set them. And his sets were really simple for mink. It was a short little dirt hole, 
that he would dig with his his uh, little yoho trowel. He would bed his trap, and he would he, in his pocket. He, he, I mean, you didn't think he had that many pockets, but everything he carried was pretty much in his pockets. He would get a little bag that he would carry in his coat pocket that would have the buckwheat holes in there, and he would just spread that on top of them and wouldn't do anything else. And that was his sets. After set after set after set were these ones completely out of the water downstream or upstream of his competition because he kind of strategically trapped the trapper into going where it wasn't the best for him to go but he knew where the trapper was going to be because he knew what a human being was going to do if something looked too good to be true they fall for it almost every time so that's what he would do but again the simplicity of that he would take his coyote traps, if he was using footholds for otter, and just use his coyote traps for otter with the drag. He'd pre-hook them in them small streams and he'd catch them with those. He also had it down to the point where he's been there so long that he knew where the otter were going to come out of the bank at. He knew when the otter were going to start going up and down the creeks depending on breeding season. And his sets were crazy simple all the time crazy simple crazy simple crazy simple and he produced fur for all those decades doing that now why am i telling you this as a trapper well for one think about it from the perspective of is everything that you're doing now is it needed or is it something you're doing that you probably don't really have to do but you just think you do if that's the case Maybe you should start thinking more like Johnny Thorpe and the old school trappers. Simplicity. Do you really need to dig a dirt hole if you make a chaff set? I don't know. You have to, you have to figure that out. If you're dealing with competition, are you strategically thinking about what your competition's doing and how you can use the human nature to your own advantage? Because this used to be a lot bigger deal. If you don't think it was... Think about what would happen today if otter and fox were worth the money that they were worth back then. You just didn't have the animal to deal with. You had everybody else out there trying to catch that same high dollar animal. So you had to think more than you do today. And to me, the fun part of trapping is the thinking part. It's a strategic part. The more you can strip down your, your trapping style, the easier and more enjoyable it is. And actually, the more efficient it becomes, the more uh, fur you'll catch and most of the time, the more money you'll make. But you got to start stripping that stuff backwards. And then when you're around people, like here, I know that the game wardens watch me on YouTube. So I put in sets and I'll show the catch. The next year, they've got traps there. That's okay, because before I ever showed that on YouTube, I've already figured out a way to cut them off. And then I'll show them that one. But I won't show them that one until I've got another way to cut them off. And it kind of it's kind of like a little private chess game. And I will do it on both, especially with Otter. That, that's, that's where I see most of this with them at. When Otter prices are high, that's, that's where it shows up. But I don't put something on YouTube unless I've already got a way... To do that so i've kind of done what johnny's done in a sense i've showed somebody the exact spot that lives in this area and knows where i'm at they know exactly the spot human nature says they're going to go set the trap there 
Well, since I know the human nature of somebody when they see that, that's okay because I'm just going to go downstream a little bit and I'm going to let them sit there, but I already know that the damage is done before the animal gets to them. So that's strategic. And that's some of the stuff that I learned from Johnny. Simplicity and, and looking at your trap line like it's more of a chess game than it is just going out and cavemaning it or trying to figure stuff out. Another thing Johnny taught me about those spring hole sets, not all those spring hole sets are on the best locations because the mountain produces the spring. The, the, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're in the mountains, a lot of times you'll have water that'll flow out of the ground, but not so much like a creek, but you'll have a consistent, like a, a, a clear mud puddle. It could be two feet or it could be 20 feet. Most of them are about six or eight feet. All the animals around there will know in the summertime that's where they go get a drink of water. But a lot of times because of the animal, the way that the animals move in the winter, they're not on the best location. Well, Johnny, either from watching somebody else or being told by somebody else over the years, had this system down. Whenever we were driving around, there'd be a dead squirrel, a dead house cat, something like that on the side of the road. He'd pull over, throw it in a bucket, kind of like O'Gorman does out in Montana. And then when we came across his next place that had a spring hole set, when the the frontiersmen at that time in New York would find these, they would actually clear them out a little bit. They'd pull up the rocks. They'd let it get deeper so it'd be more of a secure water source. And every single one of these spring hole sets had a rock pile about five foot away from them. Some of these rock piles were five and six feet tall and as big as a Volkswagen bug. Some of them were just two or three feet tall and about the size of a wheelbarrow. But all of them, at least I saw anyway, had these rock piles. So what Johnny did throughout the year, because he's strategically thinking and training the animal, and all, you know, just like he trains the trapper to go where he wants him to go, his competition, when he would see the roadkill, he'd have the bucket in the back of his Jeep, which was kind of funny to me because it didn't bother me, but it was a Jeep Cherokee, so it's not like a truck Jeep. He would throw this run over critter in there and then when we'd come by one of these hundreds of spring sets that he had set out for Fisher and Coon and Fox, he would pull over, we'd walk in the woods and he would just kind of pry up one of those rocks in that rock pile and shove that animal in there then we'd go back to the truck and go about our business. He did this all year long. So all the animals in those areas growing up knew that for some reason the meat Santa Claus would show up and just give them treats all year long. Even if they didn't want to eat it, they would have to come investigate it. So he trained those animals on a year-round basis to be where he wanted them to be when he needed them to be there. His rocks and everything for a spring hole set, which I don't know if I can talk someone through that. That's something you almost need to see. But if you look it up on YouTube, surely somebody's got a halfway decent video on it. Maybe I'll do one this, this winter just to show everybody how I learned to do that from him. It's, it wasn't the way that he showed it in the books because that's he's an old school trapper. You give information, but you never give all the information. His spring hole set was different in real life than it was that he showed on video or books. And he had the animals trained. So how can we do that with our normal everyday life? Well, with raccoons, you can pre-bait them 
all year if you wanted to. If you know someone that's a commercial fisherman and you just stopped at a certain place all the time and threw out fish heads, you'd see coon trails and fox trails and coyote trails coming up all the time and you'll have those animals visiting that all the time. Not sure you can really do it with beaver or otter, but you could definitely do it with the, the raccoons, the fox, the coyotes, the bobcats, fisher, martin, because you know he, he thinks that the fisher did more to those rock piles getting those animals out than anything else and when i was at those rock piles guys there was little skulls and stuff and bones everywhere i mean it this has been going on for decades he's been training these animals just a totally different way to look at trapping now being after the thanksgiving kind of thinking about you know this old stuff that I was reading about the fur prices and the, you know, guys getting sprayed with skunks to catch that high dollar of, a, of an animal and the different traps and the historical value made me think of Johnny. You know, he was a guy from a different time period. And he looked at the world a lot different when it came to his trapping, but he was very good at what he did. And a smart trapper, somebody that wants to be better than they are now, will take some of the stuff I've just said and figure out a way to, to apply them to what you're doing now. You know, one of the biggest things, if you get out of the vehicle and you've got a bag that you don't want to carry more than 20 feet because you've got it weighing 55 pounds of every gadget and gizmo known to the world, start stripping that stuff out of there. You don't need it. Start figuring out a way to train the trappers that are around you and also train the animals that are around you. And the more you do it, the more you start seeing patterns and the better you'll get at stuff like that. And you'll start becoming just a little bit better trapper than you were last year, then a little bit better trapper than you were the year before that. And before you know it, you're really rocking and rolling. And hopefully you can figure all that out before you're getting too old to be able to put it to really good use. So that's just kind of what it was on my mind on the day after Thanksgiving. I thought I'd share this little treat from somebody that got this booklet 12 miles from me in 1916. Some of the prices and traps, thinking about Johnny, thinking about the difference between the old school trapper and the new school trapper, and thinking about different ways to, you know, intertwine all of that into what we're doing today so go out have a good time get your fingernails dirty try to keep the water out of your hip boots put some fur in the back of the truck and just enjoy being a trapper and i or somebody else will talk to you next week They used to call me lightning, I was always quick to strike Had everything I owned in the saddles on my back I had a reputation for never staying very long Just like a wild and restless drifter, like a cowboy in a song I met a dark-haired beauty, 
Where they lay the whiskey down in southern Arizona In a little border town She had to dance for money In that dusty old saloon I dropped a dollar in the jukebox Played that girl a tune, yeah Never see it coming It just hits you by surprise It's that cold place in your soul That fire in her eyes That makes you come together Like wild horses when they run Now the cards are on the table And the bullets in the gun, yeah She's sitting on my lap We still had shots to kill When a man pulled up who owned the bar In a Cadillac DeVille Grabbed her by her raven hair And threw her in the floor Said no free rides for the cowboys That ain't what I pay you for, no She jumped up and grabbed my pistol Stuck it in a fat man's back Said open up the safe and put your money in the sack Tied his hands behind him and put a blindfold on his eyes If you're dumb enough to chase this man, you dumb enough to die Never see it coming, it just hits you by surprise It's that cold place in your soul, that fire in her eyes It makes you come together like wild horses when they run